This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Hello and welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Tracy Walbrink, a pediatric intensivist at Boston Children's Hospital and co-director of Open Pediatrics. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Akira Nishisaki. Dr. Nishisaki is an attending physician in pediatric critical care medicine at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the principal investigator of the National Emergency Airway Registry for Children, or NEAR for Kids, which is a multi-center prospective registry for advanced airway management in pediatric intensive care units. The project is supported by the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigators, or POLICI network, for which Dr. Nishisaki is the chair of the network from 2023 to 2026. Currently, Near for Kids has more than 40 participating ICUs and 17 emergency room sites and has published close to 40 manuscripts. I'm really excited today to speak with Dr. Nishisaki about his recently published paper in critical care medicine entitled Implementation of Video Laryngoscope Assisted Coaching Reduces Adverse Tracheal Intubation Associated Events in the PICU. Welcome, Akira. Thank you, Tracy. I'm super excited to be here today, and I'm delighted to talk about our recent paper. Fantastic. So I wonder if we could start out with a brief introduction about Near for Kids. What is it? How and why was it started? What were the goals of the project? Do you want to let us know a little bit more about that? I would love to hear more. Absolutely. So the Near for Kids started as a sort of the as a child of the NIA project or National Emergency Airway Registry, which is actually the Adult Emergency Department collaborative project initially intended to demonstrate the improvement in the safety and the procedural success in the adult patient in the emergency department. Then Dr. Nadkani at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, he learned from Dr. Rob Walls. He is actually in Boston. Then he adapted at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia as a quality improvement tool in our ICU. That was a December of 2004. Then we kept the local project going about five years. We had simulation-based interventional trial to improve airway management success in our ICU. And we used the near for kids as an outcome measurement tool. Because of our success, we felt comfortable expanding this Near for Kids sort of tool to a multi-center quality improvement project. Around 2010, Dr. Adrian Randolph, she was a policy chair at the time, that she said that we need to have more quality improvement project across the policy network and so that we presented the Near for Kids project. And there were quite handful of the interested sites. So we expanded the Nihon Kids to more than 10 sites at the time. Then we gradually grow over the time. So that's the sort of the birth of Nihon Kids. We also started to include the emergency department folks. So we now call them Nihon PEM or Nihon National Emergency Airway Registry for Pediatric Emergency Medicine. And that we have now 17 sites. And there were two colleagues for the Nia for PEM, the Dr. Monica Priero and Dr. Robin Wynn. Monica is a chap and Robin is at the Brown Hasbro Children's. So they, they are leading the project very effectively. Also, there's Nia for Neos that we expanded the project to a neonatal intensive care unit. And now 
it is co-led by Liz Foglia or Dr. Foglia at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and myself, and we now have more than 15 sites. So now we have near for kids, near for PEM, and near for nails. Our mission or goal is we like to have the zero preventable harm from the critical airway management in the critical airway management in children so that we have still room to go. But I think we have done a reasonable job over the past 10 years, and we implemented the three quality improvement project as a Marta-Sena collaborative. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that experience. And it's incredible to hear the amount of growth that you've had over the last 20 years and how many collaborative sites and different groups you've been able to bring on board. And I think clearly as evidenced by more than 40 manuscripts, you've been highly productive in this research network, you and all of the collaborators. So congratulations. And it's been really exciting to read your findings and your research over time. Speaking of research, I'd like to turn now to your more recent paper on the video laryngoscope-assisted coaching. I was hoping you could walk us through the paper, its major findings, and what you think is important that we should all know from this paper. So we published the paper in Critical Medicine. The title is Implementation of Video Laryngoscopy Assisted Coaching Reduces Adverse Striker Intubation Associated Events in the Pediatric ICU. So we implemented the video laryngoscopy as a part of the standard procedure for uh, intubation across the 10 ICUs. And then the outcome measure was actually the adverse tracheal intubation associated events, which is a composite outcome measures that sort of the adverse events you don't want to see or you like to avoid during the tracheal intubation procedure. So our study design was quality improvement intervention as opposed to the parallel intervention, which you, the many other studies have done that. So that means that the, those 10 sites, they have sort of institutional agreement in the ICU that video laryngoscopy should be the way to go. So as a research team, we will create a tool for you to best implement video laryngoscopy. Then we will document your success. So that is a project and we got 10 sites from the near for kids got together. Our study intervention was the video learning oscopy assisted coaching. That's how we sort of introduced the video learning oscopy without sort of shying away the people that they don't want to forget the direct learning oscopy skills. We came up with a coaching language, which needs to be very succinct and very clear to both the coach and, learn, uh, and learners. And we borrow a lot of knowledge from the resuscitation coaching, as well as sort of cockpit conversation in NASA. We had an outside sort of the co-investigators to help us shape those coaching language that used during the intubation. So we implemented the video laryngoscopy with coaching language. We trained the coaches across the site. Then we continue to document the intubation safety and success outcomes using the same year for kids registry mechanism. That was actually quite surprising, but more consistent with what the bedside clinician thought. That we reduced the tracheal intubation associated events from 14.5% to 9.4%. We included 5,060 tracheal intubations throughout the study. The severe tracheal intubation associated events, those are more life-threatening complications, so to speak, like cardiac arrest or esophageal intubation with delayed recognition or the hypotension. 
requiring interventions. And we deduce that from 5.3% to 3.9%. Also, surprisingly, that the desaturation rate did not go up. So I think the coating language worked that because our obvious fear was, yes, you have more information, the visual information, in addition to the conversation you have between the coach and learning oscopist during the intubation, so that the people takes longer time to process the information. That, that was, as I mentioned, that was a concern in the previous pediatric anesthesia study, but that actually we did not have that. Our desaturation rate essentially didn't change. They remained around 16%, and we, our first attempt success rate um, went up a little bit, 66% to 72%, but that was not statistically significant. Then when we looked at um, how people are following this sort of the implementation tool, about 60% of them did use the video laryngoscopy as a direct laryngoscopy tool for the intubator or laryngoscopist. So this indicates that the coaches were the ones accessing the, to the video image. Our potential weakness is that we didn't record any conversations at the bedside, right? So we really don't know how actually the supervising attending, for example, is using the coaching language at the right time. <laughs> this is sort of a little bit pragmatic trial or pragmatic study, QI study we did, so that's the limitation of this. That what's interesting is that odds ratio for the reducing tracheal intubation associated events was higher in the, among the infants getting intubated as opposed to older children because of the patient being small and everything small and the space is small, that the infant intubation can be challenging. And then that's where we had the most sort of the reduction in the tracker intubation associated event. So the video learning seem to work where we, we struggle right now. And also that the resident has a largest or the, the smallest odds ratio, so or a largest sort of the benefit from the video learning then then fellows, then attending. So that it clearly helping the more novice learning to achieve the intubation more safely. So those are, are sort of the main findings from this quality improvement clinical study. Fantastic. And I think this is such an incredible study with a, such a huge number of patient information that you've captured and really continues to build on all the work that you've been putting forth together. Would you mind just letting us know a little bit of how that language sort of worked? If you were standing there or I was standing there with a trainee in front of me, what kind of language, what sort of words or how would I actually use the coaching as I was speaking? I don't know if you could give an example of what that might sound like. Very common one is the blade goes too deep. Um, then the people often use the come back or the pull back. I think there were a lot of confusions that come back means should I take out the blade or not to take out the blade? If you take out the blade, you start again, then that adding another five seconds to the procedure. So we came up with a language that uh, pull back slowly because you don't want the laryngoscopist jerky sort of a quick movement of the blade in and out that will change the use very too quickly, interferes identifying the landmark, and also that from the coaching perspective, that becomes very difficult to coach to re orient yourself or where the learning sort of position is. So that's like just one example, but we came up with 10 specific coaching language at the certain 
stage of the laryngoscopy. And I think that we can share the link so that everybody has uh, access to those coaching language. I'm curious, you know, how this relates to sort of the literature in adults and your near for neos data. Are you seeing similar things across all ages or, you know, or is the study unique in any aspect? Yes, there's a little bit historical aspect of this. At that time, there was a Delta ICU and Martosena trial from France that using the viral laryngoscopy with the MAC growth viral laryngoscopy compared to the traditional viral laryngoscopy and actually didn't change the past attempt success at all. And there was a trend on the second outcome, there was a trend more towards the more harm in the viral laryngoscopy group. One of the arguments for that is that everybody's learned how to do a direct laryngoscopy, but those learners who use the video laryngoscopy only got very short period of orientation and practice in the video laryngoscopy. So they may not be used to how to perform the video laryngoscopy safely. In the neonate side, there was one trial at the time from Australia that use the video laryngoscopy coaching. I think that the device was different, but basically the coach had a video laryngoscopy access, incubator did not, and that improved the fast attempt success from the 41% to 66%. And so that was a neonatal side of the finding. So the adult side doesn't help. Neonatal side, maybe the coaching is a way to go. Pediatric side, we didn't have that much evidence at the time. So that's where we started. Also, throughout the study, during the study, there was an OR study done by Dr. John Fiaccio. Actually, he's at the Boston Children's Hospital now in the Department of Anesthesiology. He did the project called BISI trial, B-I-S-I trial. It's an OR study that for comparing the viral laryngoscopy versus direct laryngoscopy in infant and among the trainee intubation. And then the study showed that the video laryngoscopy improved the intubation success, faster than success by about 5.5% from the 88% to 93%. But this is an OR study. Patients are more under control, less risk, fewer risks, and those are non-difficult airway patients. So the baseline success rate is already 88%. So those are the studies and trials around the video laryngoscopy versus direct laryngoscopy in children at the time. And our study, I think, added some more values that it seemed to help to safely conduct the airway management in the ICU. And especially the impact is higher when more novice clinicians at the laryngoscopist or the infants getting intubated. I need to add one comment about more recent studies. There is a trial, I think, published in New England Journal of Medicine this year, that is more pragmatic trial design, including 17 either emergency department or ICUs, and comparing the video laryngoscopy versus direct laryngoscopy. And I believe video laryngoscopy has 85% faster than success rate, and direct laryngoscopy had about 70% faster than success rate. Um, so the absolute risk difference was like 14%. And finally, I think the, the adult side showing the very similar result of the, the effectiveness of video laryngoscopy. 
So I think those are the sort of perspective comparing to other existing evidence. Fantastic. So it seems like we now have data in neonates, we now have data in pediatrics, and now we have data in adults that show video laryngoscopy increases the first attempt success rate. Seems like also throughout those studies that the first attempt success rate has been improved, but as you mentioned, the, the risk of severe events, there may be a trend towards significance throughout all those studies, but not yet significant. And I'm curious why you think that that finding is there. I think one sticky point is what do you define as a severe event? Uh, for example, near for kids, we didn't include the desaturation less than 80% as a severe event. We captured the desaturation as an independent sort of the outcome variable. But adult trials, they often capture desaturation, especially less than 80% as a severe event. So that might sort of give some points. And the obviously, pediatric patients, they desaturate more. That, that's actually more common. So that's one aspect of it. I think that the outcome definition part is quite important. And also that overall, I think that because of the many, many investigators' effort, as well as the for kids and for neos' effort, I think overall intubation hopefully is getting safer so that the underlying severe event rate is not as high. So you need way more, higher number of the intubations to show statistically significant difference. Yeah, totally makes a lot of sense. Now, obviously, you've been doing a ton of work in this area, and you've published a lot of studies. I'm curious what questions or topics remain unanswered that still require investigation, and do you have any other active or planned studies right at the moment? Thank you. That's a very good question. Right now, we are looking into a more technology solution. We implemented bundle checklist in a paper form to improve the intubation safety about six, seven years ago, and we published in the critical care medicine as well. But now those paper-based checklists can improve that we have more digital technology so that the checklist can be digital and should be more helpful to the bedside clinicians. It should have the clinical decision support. So clinicians should think A, B, and C if we are intubating certain high-risk patients. And also digital checklist should warn you if some anticipated events rates are high, like this patient is more likely to have severe desaturation event, you should really consider apneicoxination, for example, or you should really match the laryngoscopy skill to this high-risk patient, right? So the, the checklist doesn't have to be the same every time when you do an intubation ICU. Each patient is unique and different and should be uh, accommodating those differences to make the intubation safer. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Speaking of that, you have a large number of resources available on the New York for Kids website. And I wonder if you could maybe walk us through a little bit of what's available for clinicians if they're interested in using some of these tools at the bedside. Yeah, New York for Kids has done three quality improvement interventions. One, the checklist, and second, apnecoxination, the third, this video laryngoscopy. And the tutorial videos are available on the website. We also have the list of publications. Also, the, the publication we had actually has a link to the, some of those materials. And we will continue to improve our website so that uh, potentially you can just link, click the website to link to those materials as well. But at least those are available through the papers. Lastly, most importantly, if you are interested in joining the for Kids, there's a link 
on the website to join the Yahoo Kids or Yahoo News and Yahoo Pems. So I think those are a quick sort of material for you, and we will continue to develop more educational tools as we grow. Fantastic. Well, we will make sure that we put a link to your website in our description for this podcast. So for those that are looking to access the resources and or join your group, they'll have that ready access there. One question I had for you is, you know, obviously it's such a luxury to have access to video-assisted laryngoscopes at the ready in our ICUs. And it's clearly an advantage for patients, especially when helping trainees learn the skill. However, there's a large number of low and middle income hospitals that do not have access to this technology. And I'm curious what advice you might give for providers practicing in that environment. What are some strategies that they can do to try to make intubation safer if they don't have video laryngoscopy available? Sure. I think we learned a lot through the collaborative. That one of the things that we learned through this video laryngoscopy project, as well as other projects within the kids, is that each learner is different. It may be obvious to the educators, but it's not so obvious to many, many other clinicians. Some learners are very quick at achieving the mastery level or the competence level. Some learners take longer time, and each learner is different from what step they are having a struggle. And the video laryngoscopy will give you a cue, but you don't have to have a video laryngoscopy. If you observe your learners performing the procedure, then Think about which steps the learner is struggling and keep documenting it so that you as an educator can address that, right? Then once the learner becomes more proficient in a particular step, then the overall success will go up and safety actually goes up. So pay attention to the learners and sort of understanding that each learner is different, that not everyone takes the same route, that some spend a lot of time at the beginning for example, how to insert the laryngoscopy blade and handle the turn. Some learners have issues to adjust the depths or handling the, the epigraulis, for example. So that each learner is different, and you need to know what particular part of the intubation process they, they are struggling so that you can address that. So I think that's the biggest lesson we learned, and you don't have to have a video laryngoscopy to identify that. You need to have more conversation with your learners. You need to watch carefully what your learner is doing so that... Uh, you, you, as a group, as learners and teachers, achieve safer intubation in ICU. Fantastic. Well, those strategies clearly can cross whatever kind of technology you have. So I appreciate that. Well, I just have one more question for you for trainees and or maybe junior faculty members that are interested in sort of doing a similar thing in terms of trying to bring together multiple groups or a collaborative that might be thinking about doing a multi-center study. And I'm curious what advice you might offer to trainees and or junior faculty or anybody else that's looking to do these kind of studies. What have you learned over your 20 years of being involved in running this project and what advice can you give us? I think there are multiple different ways to climb top of mountain. At the same time, especially this quality improvement, sort of practice improvement, and also the, the huge educational sort of component contained project, you might want to start at your institution, talk to the people, both from the learner side, as well as the educator side. If you are looking into the airway management, obviously we had a very close relationship with our respiratory therapist and respiratory department. If you are looking to, into other let's say vascular access, then make sure you have close relationship with the interventional radiology maybe, or the vascular access nurses, so that, that make sure you have 
system as a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary team, then prove the success and the value at your own institution, then bringing up the multi-center, the research collaborative like policy that we are always looking for the project, multi-center project that will improve our care for critical children. So I think that's the path I would recommend. Fantastic. I love that. You know, you can't go wrong with starting with a multidisciplinary group to begin with, starting in your own institution, starting small, having success building on that, and then expanding beyond. So I think that is incredibly helpful and very useful advice to our listeners and our learners and our colleagues around the planet. So I just wanted to thank you so much, Akira, for speaking with me today about Near for Kids and your recent manuscript. It's been a real pleasure learning from you, and I look forward to your next study and how your project and collaborators continue to advance our understanding of pediatric emergency airway management. Thank you, Tracy. It is such an honor to be on this talk. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. You can find the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast in the description. We have more podcasts like this one available everywhere you get your podcasts. Visit openpediatrics.org for more information. 